I'm Ben Horson. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. Hello, Agnes. How are you? I'm great. It's the end of a long day, but I feel uh, energised nonetheless. And you say it's the end of the long day. It's also the end of a long series. Crikey. So we were very lucky this week. Finally, we have mm-hmm. got the boss on, haven't we, Ben? We have indeed. We are joined by Robin Niblett today. CMG. Who is, CMG, mm-hmm. apologies, who is the director of Chatham House. Yes, we have Robin Niblett on talking to us about a article that he wrote for International Affairs and the Martin White lecture, which he gave recently at Chatham House, on the future of think tanks. Yeah. What are we doing here? Where are we going? Mm. And really, it's it was super interesting to be thinking about that now because I guess people that don't know about Chatham House may not know that actually we're coming up to our 100th year centenary. And obviously, a lot of this year and the last four years have been taken up by remembrance of the First World War. And actually, our roots as an organisation, mm-hmm. are also in the end of the First World War. Yeah. We were founded just after the Paris Peace Conference, the Treaty of Versailles, 1919. And it's a kind of interesting turning point to be sat here a few years now into the 21st century going, we're at a crossroads, potentially. Yeah. What, are we, what are we doing? Where are we going? And 100 years on, you know, are we still doing what we've set out to do and yeah. have our priorities changed should they have changed did it work did it work i mean second world war spoiler Has it gone? Alert. yeah <laughs> <laughs> robin's very interesting on all of that and you know the role of experts uh, in the current climate and we actually have some interesting pod admin news for you which is that we have got to the end of our first season this is it, season finale. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, and we'll be back in 2019, obviously, recommissioned, never in doubt. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly back for another 25 Have episodes. Have we actually had that signed off officially, Ben, or are we just continuing? Right. I've still got my mic. I'm still, I've yeah. still got the software. No one's told me I should stop uploading things. To so be honest, we've been given a budget, As far as then. I'm concerned. Crikey, I know. But we're going to expand. This isn't the end. We're not just going to be content with 25 episodes of high quality political analysis. And interviews, no. We're going to go bigger. So Agnes, why don't you tell us a bit about our plans for next year? In the run up to 2020 and our centenary, Ben and I thought it might be fun to do 10 extra episodes based around a speech from the Chatham House archive each decade. And we're going to ask a researcher in that field from Chatham House to come in and analyse the speech and talk about the themes and whether they're still relevant today or whether things have moved on. Yeah, we're pretty excited. I think it'd be fair to say. So anyway, we should probably crack on. Yeah, let's have a listen to Robin. So today we're very lucky to be joined by Robin Niblett. Robin is the director of Chatham House and has built a career at the coalface of international relations, both in London and Washington, D.C. His latest article, published in International Affairs, is titled Rediscovering a Sense of Purpose, the Challenge for Western Think Tanks. And it's free to access now on the Chatham House website. Robin, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Great to meet both of you. Could you begin just by explaining sort of what you see as the purpose of Chatham House? What are we doing here? (laughs) What are we doing here? Um, 
The purpose of Chatham House is to be a venue for independent, creative thinking that's driven uh, by deep expertise of particular regions, themes, and issues in international affairs. This has always been a valuable purpose of any think tank, uh, since think tanks really came onto the scene about 100 years ago. I think this core purpose of being a venue for thoughtful, objective analysis, for open debate, and for coming up with some sort of creative ideas about how to make things better in the world, these are timeless and important objectives, uh, and they're ones that we are as committed to today as we were when we were founded 100 years ago. And do you think that that has changed in the almost 100 years since we were founded? I think the core objectives, those three pillars as I see them, of objective analysis, sort of independent debate and and good ideas, uh, forward-looking ideas, have not changed. Two things have changed. The context and therefore the content of the analysis, the ideas and the debate. The obvious statement about the context is we were created in a time when policymaking was a very elite process. Uh, We were born out of the Versailles peace treaty negotiations, which interestingly were more open than before because experts who ended up being the people at Chatham House and other think tanks in America were invited to sit along with the diplomats and actually contribute to the thinking. So that was a, a modest step into a more open world then. But we came from a period where the way that you uh, got your ideas into the political system was by really focusing on the elites involved in making policy. So the environment for being an effective think tank, which was knowing the key players in key areas of policy, and maybe sometimes business, but principally policy, um, that was then. We're definitely in a much more open environment for policy making today, which is therefore means that we have to be much more inclusive in the networks we bring together. So that's one change. I think the other big change is that after a brief flirtation with a sort of an international system of government almost, the League of Nations was meant to be, uh, after it was created in 1920, um, uh, a chance to avoid war because most governments would come together and make sure it never happened again. That failed. Obviously, we had the Second World War. So we then became involved in the big idea of how do you come up with a system of international governance that is more realistic and predictable, which was the UN system which by having permanent members with vetoes in the Security Council recognised that the big powers had bigger influence. And that did lead to a pretty uh, stable period. But it was a stable period where a think tank like Chatham House was on one side of the contest. We were on the West side against, let's call it, the Soviet bloc, the communist, more authoritarian, totalitarian system. And so we went from being sort of a big idea generator of of inclusive form of international governance to the ones that protected the West and tried to make sure that we survived and even prevailed in this context. The next phase, if you bear with me for a second, was the phase of the post-Cold War period of globalisation. I think we, certainly in the Western think tanks, then shifted to becoming managers, agents of how to make globalization work. And that, again, we were able to open our horizons up to the world. It wasn't just about the West. But we became very macro, I think, in our, uh, uh, the main focus of our work. Yes, we had regional programs that understood what was going on in Africa or parts of, of Europe or 
East Asia or wherever. But the big stuff you were involved in was internet governance, climate change management, financial global regulation after the crisis. Um, and uh, that was fine for then. But what we've discovered is that now our environment for analysis, debate and ideas is one where the world is going back to some of the competitive elements of 100 years ago. Despite globalization, we see the US and Russia contesting each other. We see questioning about the future of European integration. We see the rise of nationalism, populism. So we're in a weird thing where, as I said, the, the type of work we do has remained consistent, objective analysis, good ideas, independent debate. But, you know, we've been on a journey with the world, if you want to say, uh, where the content has been quite different. Yeah, uh, just to pick up on something there, um, obviously you say one of these key pillars is independent debates. Um, but I just wondered whether I could ask you about the difference between independence and impartiality, mm. because a kind of continuity in throughout that kind of historical narrative you just gave us was that throughout our history we have always, well, think tanks have always advocated positions. They have always They've, they've always been aside, whether that was a kind of majority accepted kind of bipartisan view in a specific country. We've always said we stand for, even if it's globalisation, say, no, very few think tanks were saying actually globalisation isn't a great idea. Yep. So has, is that something you've had to kind of grapple with in your time sort of running think tanks? How, how have you sort of dealt with that need to maintain independence yeah. and um an openness to new ideas and yet standing for these things? I think the, the, the concept of independence is, is one of the toughest things for think tanks to play with, which is why quite often they describe themselves as bipartisan or nonpartisan, because that's kind of almost an easier mm. claim to, to try to stake yourself to. And as you point out, Ben, there's contrast between or potential dichotomy between impartiality and independence and objectivity. I mean, these are all quite subjective terms. Um, I do recognise that. I, th I mean, where do I start? I think the first place to start from is that when, we, when you debate issues as a think tank or if you offer a platform for debate, it is essential to work as hard as you can to get as many viewpoints around the table as possible, even if you disagree with them. Now, that can be done partly through having different types of voices mingling in civil society with business, with policy, with journalists. But even that community obviously can become quite homogenous. So then it's about age, gender, different types of, you know, ex-socioeconomic background becomes a different type of diversity. And then ultimately the diversity is people who really see the world through different lenses. And some who might believe that nationalism and, and the, the sense of mission uh, that having a belief in nationalism can create. Some people think that's a good thing. Others think that nationalism is the font of crisis and, 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 and conflict and think it's bad. Make sure you have diff two different viewpoints around the table. So in a lot of the public work that Chatham House does and a lot of the convening private work we do, uh, we and other think tanks, I think, do need to try to get as many viewpoints around the table as possible. And that allows you to be inclusive and at least to be impartial in the sense that you're providing a neutral venue at which lots of different viewpoints can come around the table and can be tested. Now that's different, however, from independent thinking. Because in the end, the people who are the full-time staff of Chatham House or any other think tank, I think, number one, have to be recruited 
if you come at it, if I may say, as a Chatham House, and I'll speak for ourselves, institute that does do its best to be led to where the evidence takes us, mm -hmm. you then have to pick people who are interested in the evidence and in exploring the facts and trying to draw their conclusions out of it. Now, the, the conclusions they draw might be influenced by their upbringing, by their cultural you know, milieu, whatever. I get that. But I think we do our best to try to recruit people who are as open-minded as possible, who do not treat being at a think tank as a venue from which to advocate pre-received positions. Uh, and so the first point is who you recruit. Yeah? and how you recruit and having a culture and institute that, that really uh, treasures and, and prizes, let's call it that, objective outlook. Yeah. Um, the next part then is to defend it and to make sure that however you're funded, um, whatever the view of a particular government or country you're in, that you can protect that sense of independence from what are inevitably, if you've got a good brand like Chatham House and other think tanks, quite a bit of pressure to say certain things. So let me give, I think, an example. You know, during Brexit, Chatham House hosted all views. You know, we had Nigel Farage, Tony Blair, I mean, just to give two examples, but all camps had an opportunity to come and speak, and we worked as hard as we could, even in the private meetings, to try to make sure there were quite competing views around the table. But when it came to people writing about Brexit, and people looked at the evidence, their conclusions were, of most people who wrote at Chatham House, either staff or our associate fellows, our non-resident fellows, was that on balance, there were more risks than opportunities. Mm -hmm. Let's put that in a Chatham house soft way. <laughs> yeah? More risks than yeah, opportunities. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I got a couple of letters from people saying, isn't it about time Chatham House demonstrated its independence by giving the other side of the, equa the equation. And I wrote back to these letters and said, the debate is where people have the opportunity to hear all the views. But if our experts believe something, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go out and try to find an expert that miraculously believes something else. Right. Uh, we've recruited people who we think are driven by the evidence. And that, you know, b sticking with that is critical. This happened to me in Washington as well. Uh, during the Iraq war, I remember working at CSIS, and it was fascinating that the, the political landscape shifted after 9-11 from where it had been. And CSIS was criticized for being more center-left. I think my conclusion and that of the, then, of the CEO, who's still now CEO, John Hamry, was that actually what had happened is the political uh, uh, landscape had moved, and CSIS had stayed where it was. And we had to fight very hard to keep hewing to that, what we believed was objective evidence-based position. But, you know, and not let ourselves be knocked off course by accusations of political bias, when in fact it wasn't the bias, it was the political environment that had shifted. Can I ask, going back to Brexit briefly, Chatham House still didn't take a line as an official view on whether it was a good or a bad thing. And that, I think that's something that I know you feel very strongly about, but Chatham House generally, we don't take an institutional line. Do you think, with the sort of increasingly polarised debates around certain issues, climate change, immigration, do you think it will come to a point where actually taking a line is a more noble thing to do than not? Interesting word you threw in there, well, adjective, <laughs> noble. Um, definitely a... A subjective yes. comment as to what I would then think is noble or not. It might be different to what you think is noble or not. I mean, I, 
let's just just go backwards into that question. We we are definitely in a world where uh, debate has become more polarized, partly also because it is more inclusive. Many more people are involved in debates about things that they were less involved with before, because of the rise of social media, because of the much because of the greater competition that media outlets have to do to have readers, listeners, viewers, whatever, because otherwise the commercial imperative makes it harder for them to survive. Even state broadcasters are having to compete with much more uh, um, nimble and prevalent private uh, sector uh, news or opinion providers. So everyone's competing for engagement. And in that competition, to be noticed and to be heard in many views, is to be powerful. And clearly Chatham House, which has a great brand, could try to take that brand and say Chatham House has concluded that and believes that. And we could all try to coalesce as a group of experts around a particular view and and take our bylines, our individual bylines, off a report and say this is the Institute's view. And it might be more potent, to be frank. But I have to say, I think... You know, the value of the Chatham House approach and that of other institutes like ours, where you challenge your audiences to go in on the journey that the individual thinker has gone through to arrive at their conclusion. That demand of effort of your interlocutor, of your reader, of your listener is more likely to be where value ends up existing in 5 to 10 to 20 years' time than I think this rather crazy period we're going through, this transition phase we have right now from information about things or the kind of things we work on as being an elite exercise to one where we need to encourage and give the opportunity for many to more people to join in. And if they join in, they're going to have to realize they're all going to have to engage in their own critical process. And engaging the critical process is realizing that even an institute like Chatham House might have different views on one issue. I mean, on nuclear power is a good example. We have some of our energy experts think nuclear power is a necessary component of an effective climate transition and a diversified uh, uh, energy mix. We've got others who think it is a bad thing because of its byproducts, its waste, or even its security risks. And both those views exist under the hat. They're both looking at the evidence and coming out at a different position. I think people should feel they can go to Chatham House and come to Chatham House and be treated as adults and, and understand the complexity in many cases of the world and I think the most powerful aspect of our brand is to advocate for objective and inquisitive debate and, and understanding rather than coming to Chatham House for a view. Not least as that view then may change in 10 years' time or 8 years' time, might be seen later on with hindsight to have been a wrong view, and then that could affect the whole reputation of our credibility for this. So I think we need to recognise we're in a transition phase and take the high ground, if I may call it that, uh, and... Yes, there are ways we should adapt. Uh, I think we have to think bigger, maybe be a little less technocratic, which was part of a byproduct of this period of globalization where we were giving very technical answers to things. How do you manage non-proliferation? How do you manage cybersecurity? Uh, how do you manage uh, energy efficiency solutions? These are all great, but you talk to quite small and elite audiences by doing that. To have some of our experts think bigger, you know, the future of sustainable growth, 
what should reform of the UN or global governance look like. I think we need to raise our horizons a bit more. We should challenge ourselves to to engage in different types of debates on different types of topics, maybe to the ones we did before. Get involved in how does culture affect foreign policy? How does national identity affect how policy is done? I think there's ways we can adapt to this new environment, but I don't think we should. I don't think it would serve our purpose or our mission to try to then pull everything under one Chatham House label. We're not that far past the US midterms and in the sort of immediate aftermath there were I sort of noticed a few commentators saying that the fact that there was a slight democrat resurgence was evidence that this whole 3 to 4 year period has been a blip in a longer progressive march <laughs> and that things like the reforms of the Trump administration are going to be relatively short-lived yeah, yeah, and that by 2020 yeah. we may see that this administration come to an end. But do you think actually politics has changed more fundamentally than that? Do you think that's a nice story we're telling ourselves if we're hoping that it's going to sort of go back to the way things were? Yeah, I, personally, I'm of the school where things things don't get to the profound nature of change they've got to in the last four to five years, or you could go back to the Tea Party, right. mm-hmm. the rise of the Tea Party back in 2007-8, uh, which sort of coincided with the rise of UKIP over here, and the Front National has been around for a long time, Gerd Wilders has been around for a long time uh, in, in the Netherlands and, and prior to that in France respectively. These things don't crop up with the passion and the intensity and the transformative effect they've had politically and then disappear in two years. Mm -hmm. We've had at least, as we know now from the evidence, 20 years of relative wage stagnation in many parts of the West, of the United States, of, of, of a number of European countries. We've had a long process where immigration was seen as an inevitable, almost necessary part mm-hmm. of a rebalancing of opportunity. You know, we sell our high-end products out to poorer economies. Poorer economies send their people over to us, which then enables us to make our things more cheaply and keep selling them to those other countries. It was a kind of a global bargain, you could say. And these bargains have existed and lived for a long period. And their relative negative effects, which Mm -hmm. did play out in particular communities or sectors of our societies and economies, have created deep resentments that are widespread, that account for any, you take your proportion, 30% to 50%, probably, maybe even 60% in some cases, think of Greece, uh, of certain countries. And they're not going to give their faith back to the previous political bargain mm. anytime soon. Right. Uh, the democratic relative resurgence, if you want to call it, in the US midterms was largely, largely driven by young people who decided to take a passionate counter view, um, who are anti-trade, mm-hmm. probably as anti-trade as Donald Trump, uh, or anti, let's say, open global supply chain trade right. as mm-hmm. Donald Trump. Uh, they might disagree with him on the migration side, but they were taking positions in a, of a very passionate sort, and they're looking for some fundamental change politically that maybe is revolutionary as some of the change that, that Donald Trump has, has brought to bear. And the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, as in the UK, the UK Conservative Party and Labour Party, are riven internally. You know, those divides are going to take a long time to sort themselves out within political parties. So, long way of saying, 
No, I think we're in for uh, a long ride here. And part of what we need to be alive to as think tanks are some of the intangible drivers of political thought and political mobilization and legitimacy that then mobilize economics. There's a reason why there's discipline of political economy, because pure economy is not pure economy and politics, each, they're, they're interlinked. Sure. And I think the most, you know, if we go back to the writings of Benedict Anderson back in the 1980s of imagined communities, how were nation states created in Europe? They were created by, by, the, by governments creating myths. The myths of what you belong to as a nation built around reinterpretations of history, mm -hmm. built in many cases around ethnic exclusivity, built around visions of, of national ambitions and national futures. This stuff is powerful right? Mm -hmm. uh, and is driving uh, a lot. You know, when, when Trump says make America great again, I mean, you think about America first, he is harking back to Washington. Mm -hmm. who said, do not get wrapped up in foreign entanglements and uh, you get stuck in those European politics. It's bad stuff. You know, we need to look after ourselves. President Putin is, is harking back to a sovereignty view of, of an encircled Russia. Uh, but there is a great power that many citizens are willing to tap into, even if they're poorer. They don't care right. about being poorer. At least they're proud. Yeah. And we need to understand that these emotional elements of politics, as mm -hmm. uh, Dominic Moisey and others have written about, are, are very powerful. And how do they interact with this world of interdependence where we are going to have to work together despite our differences and despite our different national myths towards common solutions? It's a, it's a really interesting and difficult balance. So, I mean, if we are in a sort of more polarised situation, what do you think think tanks can learn from that? How can think tanks maybe address that differently this time around? So when we were engaged the last time the world was as polarized as it was, we were on one side of that conflict, if you want to call it, as I said earlier. I think at least the stage we're at today, yeah, where we don't have an overt Cold War between the United States and China, or between, let's call it, the West and the rest, which is what it might also be seen at, authoritarian versus more democratic societies, uh, at the stage we're at now, I think think tanks need to be really quite intelligent about not contributing to the emergence of a polarized international system that will, by definition, then be incapable of confronting the challenges of globalization that we know exist. How are you going to manage the challenge of, of climate change? or a new global financial crisis if America and China are on competing sides of, of a real systemic standoff of the sort we saw between the Soviet Union and, and the US and its allies back in the 20th century. It would be a disaster, to, to put it frank. So I think one of the lessons we need to have learned and one of the principles, I suppose, we need to aspire towards right now is to try to advocate in favor of a rules-based system, let's call it a rules-based approach to international relations, um, and one that avoids as much as possible a return to a balance of power. Mm -hmm. Because balance of power might, I suppose it could be where we end up, but if we end up there, it's going to make life really difficult in terms of ch the big challenges the planet faces and most societies faces. It would definitely be a suboptimal outcome. Mm -hmm. I think part of our role, all think tanks, is to, to fight against that right now. Now, that's all nice to say, but the fact is, 
course, we have some countries that are evolving politically, I think, in a much more closed way. We are seeing many more what are called partially free economies, as the Freedom House has noted. And there is certainly a rise in the strength of authoritarian governments, whether they be in China or in Russia and in certain parts of Africa or, you know, let's see which way Brazil goes. I mean, or even parts of Europe. So, you know, where do we stand on that? And I think the, the lesson of the last hundred years is that it will be very hard to build up a sort of inclusive international society, one that includes countries with different political systems, all still capable of working towards solutions to the big challenges of globalization and interdependence. It'll be difficult to do that if we don't at least try to encourage all societies towards certain standards of governance that I think we have learned over the last hundred years are indispensable. And in a nutshell, and they're in the International Affairs article that I wrote, they are about fundamentally accountable government. An accountable government does have certain prerequisites, in my opinion. Some form of separation of powers, some sort of relatively independent and vibrant civil society, and at least a, a desire to achieve a space in which the rule of law means more than just rule by law of the strongest of those people who are in power. Mm -hmm. I'm careful not to say we all have to be democratic societies as we might know them in the West, because that just may not be where we can be for the next X number of years. Mm -hmm. But even a country like China, I think, has grown so successfully in the last 15 to 20 years because it did allow a form of separation of powers to emerge in its society, uh, a rotation in leadership, uh, business coming into the Communist Party, uh, provincial competition. It was a form of separation of powers. And you've seen independent civil uh, societies and pretty strong medias appear, even in some of the more authoritarian uh, uh, styles of governance that are out there. It can even be encouraged in the space of environmental uh, civil society, even if it isn't always in media. So it's not an absolutist position I'm advocating here. But if we are going to have inclusive international society, I think think tanks do at least need to aspire towards certain standards and try to promote them. And as part of this surge of nationalism, populism, we've we've read a lot about how people have voted for lots of different parties because they felt underrepresented by the people at the top. And it's, you know, Michael <coughs> Gove's line about we're all fed up of experts. Chatham House and think tanks are, are seen as the elite. How do we now fit into this world where there is a distrust of the sort of older systems that we mm. are seen to be part of? No, I, I think we need to recognise the limits to what we can do to be different uh, as think tanks. You know, we are a very particular uh, constituent within our respective national polities. We are not big media organisations. We don't have the resources, and we would not be think tanks, in my opinion, if we had the resources, to compete either with the big media organizations or the big advocacy organizations, the big charities, the Oxfams or, or um, you know, Greenpeace's or, or, or whichever, uh, you know, Human Rights Watch, etc. That, that you'd want to take out there. Well, I think we simply need to ad adapt a bit. The a bit would be as follows in my, in my mind. We have for a long time, and I've used this metaphor before, at least at Chatham House, but obviously not on a podcast, we've spent a long time as think tanks being like little 
limpets sitting around the edge of the source of the river. You know, the jet of water coming out of the mountainside that is the purest moment where policy emerges. You know, the big idea by top people in government who've come into power with their ideas and they want to apply it. And, the, and that, that jet of policy ideas, think tanks have tried to get themselves as close as possible to that process, just sit around the edge and then pop their ideas in mm. and then watch it flow down the river to, to its impact on larger segments of society and however it plays out. What we discover now is that the policymakers themselves don't want to listen to these little limpets that are offering their ideas unless those ideas carry resonance with the larger community that they themselves feel now beholden to. Whether you're a Chinese leader who's worried about the much more socially awakened and politically awakened societies that they've created through their own internet economy, or whether it's the European politicians uh, who are being held to account by far more disappointed, fractious politics themselves and with social media platforms challenging all of their basic tenets. These policymakers don't have as much time to listen to the pure brilliant idea that if implemented without paying too much attention to, to the emotional politics, yes, would be the perfect answer. So while not abandoning that role, because there are times when you really can make a difference by getting your idea early into a policy process, we do need to sort of get a little bit further down the river and engage larger communities. Now, larger communities for think tanks means getting to 100,000 or 200,000. It's not getting to a million, I think, necessarily. I mean, maybe some people will have Twitter followers of a million, but we're more likely to be trying to get to that audience that is the interested or informed next level that intermediate and engage much more with some of the sophisticated and complex problems that think tanks uh, involve themselves in, climate change, internet, you know, or, or security in the Middle East or wherever. And so the way we need to change, I think, is number one, uh, therefore, in our outreach, it's enabling people to engage with our outputs down the river. So more infographics, more the opportunity to people come and see how we collated the data, play around with it, change it, I mean, not change the data, but go in and say, well, what if I think this is a more important thing, how does that affect the policy solution that, that, mm. that you have advocated? Uh, it's a case of uh, doing more of this type of, you know, rather than putting out a report with an executive summary, you need a podcast, you need a video cast, you need, you know, like we always said in this little media studio, we've got to be more accessible. Use the social media platforms, use all of the techniques to just enlarge the aperture, enlarge the, the circle of people that we can engage in our conversations, while recognizing, as I said, we'll still be relatively elite. Because that's not a bad thing. Mm. And my closing point on this is that people, you know, trust is everything. And I think if we get out of our zone of where we can be effective, and to do that, we'd have to raise a lot more money. If we raise a lot more money, we might lose some of our credibility. You know, we've got to stay in the zone of what our, what our core mission is. I just had a question I wanted to ask in closing. <laughs> so obviously, we've spoken a little bit about Brexit uh, and the referendum and also about Trump's election. If you could rerun Chatham House in 2016, would you do anything differently? Hmm. Um, well, the fact that I'm hesitating makes you think that I've not really felt that we should have done, but I, I, I want to take the question... Well, you know, as, as it's been fired out the gun at me, if you see what I'm saying, and right at, right at me. Uh, I, I don't think so, because 
let me say it again, again, where can you be influential? The impact of think tanks, if they do their job well, is sort of curating debates that will then have their impact in terms of policy two to five years down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, where I think you know, we argued, and I argued, and others argued, holding a referendum on Britain's membership of the EU was a pretty bad idea. I actually wrote a piece, I think it was in July of 2012, before the phrase Brexit that had been used. I foolishly didn't publish it on time, um, talking about an accidental Brexit. And I was warning at the time that I thought that to do a referendum would carry really unintended consequences three, four years later. Mm -hmm. Now, I said it a lot privately. I advocated as much as I could. That was the right thing to be doing, I think. And turned out to be right, because we did end up in an accidental Brexit. It was not what the main purveyor of it, David Cameron, wanted to have as the outcome. So where I think we could have done things differently is less about what we did in 2016. It was maybe what we should have been looking at more in 2014 or Mm -hmm. 2012 or 2000. No, I wasn't here in 2010, (laughs) um, which was uh, doing more work on the fairness agenda on the equity agenda of the globalization process, Mm -hmm. rather than arguing how to accrue the aggregate benefits for the world and for nations of the process of globalization, which are undoubted. I mean, Britain's done pretty well in aggregate. The world, I mean, think of the hundreds of millions that are in poverty, a country like China, which, you know, which is now providing cheap goods that make a lot of our lives more livable and more affordable. Um, you know, we, we went in that journey with the aggregate yeah. benefit to mm-hmm. the world and lost sight of the net winners and losers. And the result was that we didn't spot, I think, the backlash. Mm-hmm. And that's the lesson we need to learn to ourselves, which I said earlier, we need to understand more about myth, what drives people's rejection today. People will reject facts today because they don't agree with the solution. People like us spent so long talking about the need to cooperate Mm -hmm. in terms of good solutions. But people now associate cooperation with winners and losers. They associate globalization, which is all about cooperation with winners and losers. So uh, I think we need to be much, we need to go below the surface of just nations, look at communities, look at cities, Uh, look at communities in terms of uh, um, student viewpoints, different regions. We just need to be a lot more disaggregated about the community that is our evidence base. Mm -hmm. Our evidence base became almost like economists, too in the round, too aggregate, too big. And Chatham House, when it was founded, was founded by people who were really quite deep experts down into communities and cultures and small nationalities. I think we need to rediscover some of that specificity Mm. um, and get ourselves back uh, into into some of the weeds while at the same time not losing obviously the big picture. So it's it's a more complicated challenge we have to set ourselves, uh, but then it's a more complicated world. Robin Niblett, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for the questions and the opportunity. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Congratulations for getting this far into the episode. As a token of our appreciation, we just wanted to alert you to the fact that... The secret. While this is actually the season finale, it's not the only thing we're going to be doing in December. We've got an extra special thing for you in a couple of weeks, but only those of you who've stuck it out this far will know. (laughs) 
But in the meantime... And those of you who have automatically subscribed and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and it, for whom it automatically <laughs> downloads. But hey, anyway, you guys you have got the anticipation, so this is great. <laughs> so yeah, so watch out in a couple of weeks for what will be the final, final episode of 2018 mm. of Undercurrents. In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Magnus Frimpston and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>